Good morning, everyone. Today's readings would come from John chapter 8, verse 48 through 58. The Jews answered him, Are we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see that. And this they exclaim, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste that. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the talk of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple crowd. Thank you, Max. And please uh, leave your Bible open to John chapter 8. As you know, we're going through the Gospel of John, and the theme verse in John is John 20, uh, 31. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. I think a couple of the two biggest questions that we can answer in life is, who is Jesus, and what does he want from me? All through the book of John, uh, John is writing uh, to declare the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At various places in the book of John, he says, I am, I am, I am, right? I am the bread of life. I am the lie of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. I mean, why did he say those things? You remember back in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was experiencing the presence of God in the burning bush and that voice came out and the voice basically said, you need to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses said, well, who should I say, send me? And the voice said, I am who I am. Tell him I am sent you. And so when Jesus said, I am, those who knew the Old Testament knew that he was saying, I am Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. He is God. And John chapter 8 uh, is another section that talks about an I am, and it's an unusual I am. He said, before Abraham was, I am. We're going to get to that in a minute. So we must accept uh, or reject Jesus. 
Because he's Lord whether you believe it or not. And he will always be Lord. And he will always be God. And he will always be king. But we have a decision to make. And we can accept him and trust him as Savior and Lord. Or we can reject him. And that's the place that we're in in John chapter 8. It demands a response. Uh, He's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he really is Lord. Who is he? I mean, since it's the Masters uh, tournament weekend, I'm I'm sure a lot of you are watching the, the green coat golf tournament. I heard a story about Jesus and Moses. They were on the golf course. And they were going along the course fairly well, but uh, then Jesus, he began hitting some shots that were way off the mark. And Moses began questioning Jesus about the technique he was using, and Jesus replied, well, well, that's how Arnold Palmer does it. And they continued for a few more holes and came to water hazard where Jesus shot the ball in the water. And so Moses parted the water and he retrieved the ball, telling Jesus to try something different. But that's how Arnold Palmer always does it. And Jesus hits the ball again and goes back into the water. And Moses says, okay, it's, it's, it's uh, you get it this time. And so Jesus, he walks on the water and he retrieves the ball. And about this time, two golfers were coming around the, the bend and, and they see Jesus walking on the water. And one of them yells, who does this guy think he is? Jesus Christ? And Moses replied, no, he thinks he's Arnold Palmer. I tell you, Jesus didn't have an identity crisis. Jesus always knew who he was, and he proclaimed it throughout the scriptures. So many people agree that, you know, he was just a good man. He was a good teacher. He was a lot more than that. And some agree, oh, he was a holy man. He was a prophet, unique in so many ways, and he was. And many agree that his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount was even revolutionary. Talks about the upside-down kingdom But the things that he said in today's text, in John chapter 8, are what one person has said as the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. And so, I want to look at this passage that Max just read. In John chapter 8, verse 48 to 59, four claims made by Jesus in regard to his identity. The first claim Jesus made was in in regard to his exaltation. Look at verses 48 to 50. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, Jesus has just gotten through talking to these guys and saying, your father is the devil. So now they're calling him demon-possessed. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. You know, when Jesus keeps refuting their arguments, the Jewish leaders restort to an insult. I mean, there was this conflict going on. I mean, remember, they tried to trap him with the law of Moses. They brought that woman caught in adultery. And then, you know, when he said, I am the light of the world, you know, that really upset him because he used that word, I am, and... And then he said, you know, the truth will set you free. You know, who do you think you are saying the truth will set you free? And then he says, the father is the devil. And so there's this conflict going on, you know, with the Pharisees. It's been said that when foes begin to insult you rather than address you, you've won the debate. And I think we certainly get that impression here in John chapter 8. It's turned into an angry, 
verbal attack. They accused Jesus of, of being a Samaritan, of being a Jewish half-breed, and also having a demon. I mean, they were pulling out all the stops here. Jesus was a non-Jew? <laughs> you know, he was a heretic that had no respect for the teaching of the leaders, and therefore he was a demonic. And since he didn't agree with them, it was him, not them, that was under this diabolical system of Satan, but their accusers are stilled once again because those things don't fit Jesus because Jesus is not seeking fame. Jesus is not seeking glory. It's interesting that he does not even answer the accusation of being a Samaritan. It probably didn't bother him as much as they had hoped, and the next accusation he kind of quietly dismisses, and then he moves on to his theme. The Father sends him, and he honors the Father. They, on the other hand, don't. I heard about a Jewish father was concerned about his son. And he had not truly raised him to be grounded in the faith of Judaism. And so hoping to remedy this, he sent his son to Israel. And so the boy could experience his heritage. And a year later, the young man returned home. He said, Father, thank you for sending me to the land of our fathers. It was wonderful. It was enlightening. However, I must confess that while I was in Israel, I converted to Christianity. Oh, what have I done, the father thought. So in the tradition of the patriarchs, he went to his best friend and he sought advice from his best friend. It's amazing that you should come to me, said his friend. I too sent my son to Israel and he returned a Christian. So in the traditions of the patriarchs, they went to the rabbi. It's amazing that you would come to me, said the rabbi. I too sent my son to Israel, and he returned a Christian. What's happening to our sons? Brothers, we must take this to the Lord, said the rabbi. And they fell on their knees, and they began to wail and pour out their hearts to the almighty God. And as they prayed, the clouds opened, and a mighty voice stated, amazing that you should come to me. I too sent my son to Israel. Jesus is very much aware that he is sent. He is supremely aware of his identity and who he is. And while he is aware of these things, he consistently speaks in terms of obedience and service. For Jesus is not in it for himself. It was clear, wasn't it? In the Garden of Gethsemane and at Calvary when he prays, not my will but yours be done, he exalts the Father. Exaltation. That's the first claim. The second claim Jesus made was in regard to eternity in verses 51 to 53. Read that. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? We will never die if we're followers of Christ. Isn't that something? I love that, you know, we talked about the passage last week in John 11 where Jesus said, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Christians will never die. Our bodies will die, but we won't die. And when the word of Jesus is in us and when we do it, Jesus says that we will not even notice death. Literally, that, that verb, it says, death he will not see. 
The believer takes little notice of death. Why? Because death is a non-issue. This is why when we hold uh, funeral services or memorial services here for Christians, they have a celebratory aspect to them. Physical death is actually a promotion, really, uh, to eternal life, even though eternal life starts right now when you have Jesus in your life because he is eternal life. And as he talks about death, Jesus directs our attention to his timelessness in this passage in John chapter 8. The Jewish leaders cannot fathom Jesus' statement because Jesus implies that he has what the ancients don't have, and that's power over death. And so the response is, can you truly be greater than Abraham? Come on now. I mean, this is, this is just too much. This is truly unbelievable. I mean, what's truly difficult for them is that Jesus is aware of all the implications and he still makes those claims because what Jesus implies here is that he is greater. He is bigger than the ancients. He, has, he is superior over death, so much so that he can prevent it. And this means that if he's superior to death, he's timeless. He's eternal. And so exaltation Eternity, and the third claim Jesus made was in regard to expectation. Look at verses 54 to 56. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. And so Jesus establishes confidence in this relationship that he has with the father. Jesus acknowledges that uh, self-glorification should be shunned and discounted. It means nothing. But this doesn't mean he goes without praise. He does receive praise from the Father. Jesus has confidence about his relationship with the Father, and he has a relationship, that he has faith in the relationship because he knows that the Father is with him. And Jesus makes it clear that this is not true for the people that he was talking to. It's not true for the Jewish leaders. They do not know the Father. That's what he's saying. And they have not known him in the past. And they don't know him now. Jesus now brings us back to the subject of Abraham, and he boldly states that he is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Why? Because Abraham knew that God would provide a lamb. Remember that story in Genesis 22? God said to Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son, your one and only son, and remember him marching his son up the mountain, and before he left, uh, he told his servants, you know, the boy and I were going up, and the boy and I are coming down. And right when he had the knife up there, that angel said, no, don't do it. God will provide. And so it was known in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. God provided a ram back then, but it was future. In the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Or God will see to it. And Abraham knew that God would provide a lamb in the future. And what Abraham was asked to do, God has now done. He has offered his only son. Abraham believed in the one that God would send. He trusted 
in God's promise. He rejoiced in the knowledge that the Messiah would come from his descendants. Abraham rejoiced to see that day, and it had arrived. The truth of the matter is that Jesus met the expectation of the entire Old Testament, not just Abraham. Pastor Ray Stedman puts it this way. Jesus can be seen in every king of Israel. He is prefigured in every prophet who spoke. He is spoken in every sacrifice on the Jewish altar. He is described in every ritual which they performed. He is foreseen in the tabernacle and in the temple. He is anticipated by every longing and yearning expressed in the Old Testament for something better than men already had. Exaltation, eternity, expectation. The fourth claim Jesus made was in regard to essence. Essence, 57 and 58. John 8, 57 and 58. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Jewish leaders don't quite know what to do with this thing about Abraham because Jesus was implying that he was before Abraham. That Jesus actually preceded Abraham. How can Jesus claim to be an elder of Abraham? He wasn't yet 50 years old. But Jesus does precede Abraham because Jesus is Jehovah. I want all my Jehovah Witness friends to know that. Jesus is Jehovah. And over against Abraham's fleeting span of life, Jesus places his own timelessness. And in doing so, Jesus makes the claim that he is the self-existent one, that he is God. And as I mentioned at the beginning, Exodus 3, Jesus used the holy name of God to refer to himself. I am. When the Jewish leaders said, who do you think you are, God? Jesus said clearly and unashamedly, Yes, I am. I am who I am. And he stated that he was not dependent. He was not created. In his being, in his essence, there was eternity. He was deity. Jehovah is Jesus. Jesus is Jehovah. So what's the application? What did he do? What did they do? Well, they picked up stones. Did you see that? Did you read that? They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus, he hid himself, and he he went out of the temple. The Jewish leaders finally had the charge that they were looking for, blasphemy. If for some reason you don't believe that Jesus meant to say that he was God, then at least you can do is believe the Jewish leaders. They become so aroused, they become so angry by his claim that they are ready to take the law into their own hands. The charge is blasphemy. And for the Jewish mind, this was the ultimate insult against God. Blasphemy is a creature claiming to be the creator. It's the height of irreverence. It's the height of impriety, of arrogance. And what is interesting to note is that Jesus made no effort whatsoever to correct their, quote, misconception. He does not attempt to placate anybody. He doesn't look to compromise or to calm them down. 
Instead, he almost enrages them deliberately, claiming things he knows that they will not accept. And then he leaves. And then he leaves. They cannot find him because he's not done yet. But they're going to have their evil day. But it will be according to God's timetable and not theirs. Just as the Jewish leaders were faced with choices about Jesus, so are we. The choices before us remain the same, you know. I mean, here's Jesus. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Lord. If it's not true, uh, one option is that he is a liar, that he actually knew that his claim to be God was not true, and that would make Jesus out to be a liar. I mean, that's a possibility. Maybe he was lying. Or if it's not true, there's another possibility. He was crazy. He was a lunatic. Another option if Jesus' claims were not true. A lunatic. If Jesus did not know that his claim to be God was not true, then he was a, a lunatic. He was nothing more than just madman. He was crazy who was suffering from delusions of grandeur, you know, saying, I am the truth, and I am the way, and I am, the, you know, I am, what is he doing? He's nuts. Or he is the Lord. If Jesus did exist and his claim to be God is true, then he is nothing less than the Lord. He is the Lord of life. He is the conqueror of death, holding all life in his hands. The testimony of Paul in Philippians is correct. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it's your choice. Call him Lord now or call him Lord later. You're going to call him Lord either as a choice now or in judgment later. Jesus is to be our master and the Lord of all of our life, including our business life. He's to be the Lord of our sexual life. He's to be the Lord of our recreational life. He's to be the Lord of our family life. All of, who are, all of who we are, we, we, it just comes underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ because he is not just a figurehead. He has the right to rule. He has the right to control all of our affairs. Therefore, if we recognize him as Lord, you know, it's time to worship him. We are to give him the reverence and the honor that he deserves we are to be done with the idea that God is some kind of our pal. Jesus is Lord. We must take into account all that we owe him. 
When we do so, we realize that he deserves more than half-hearted praise that we often offer him. Realize that getting excited about sports and not him is actually an insult to God. Pursuing profit and not eternity is worse than spitting in his face. Investing time and money of our own for our own recreation while neglecting what is eternal, it's offensive to God's heart because we're called to love him with all of our heart and all of our mind and soul and strength. This is true worship and evidence of a choice that accepts and receives Jesus. C.S. Lewis, I quote, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So it's your choice. You call him Lord now or call him Lord later. D.M. Stearns was preaching in Philadelphia. At the close of the service, a stranger came up to him and said, you know, I don't like the way you spoke about the cross. I think that instead of emphasizing the death of Jesus, it'd be far better to preach Jesus, the teacher, the example. Stearns replied, well, if I presented Christ in that way, would you be willing to follow him? I certainly would, said the stranger without hesitation. All right then, said the preacher. Let's take the first step. He did no sin. Can you claim that for yourself? The man looked confused and somewhat surprised. Why, no. He said, I acknowledge that I do sin. Stearns replied, then your greatest need is to have a savior, not an example. The Bible says that all who call on Jesus as Savior and Lord will have a home in heaven. And you can call on him in prayer by admitting your need for forgiveness, forgiveness of your sins, and we all have sins to be forgiven. Believing that Jesus died for you on the cross and rose again from the dead and asking him to make you a new person in Christ, clean in heart and a child of God with a home in heaven. Liar, lunatic, or Lord? Which one is it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are the Lord. Whether people acknowledge you or not, that you are the the bread of life, you're everything that you have claimed to be, the light of the world, the door, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. Lord, I thank you that you're the way and the truth and the life. 
I thank you that before Abraham was, you said, I am. And Lord, I pray that we would put ourselves underneath your authority. You're the only one that can forgive our sins because you lived a life that we can't live. And you died the death that we cannot die. You died in our place. And I pray, Lord, that we could make that great exchange. We could exchange our sin for your righteousness, Lord, and find what it means to be made alive in Christ through the Holy Spirit, to walk in newness of life. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I pray, Lord, as we think about your claims, that when we leave here, we might be able to say, you know, it really is well with my soul. I really do believe and trust in Jesus. And I, pu- I pray, God, that your spirit would bear witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And now, Lord, help us to worship you even as we bring you your tithe. Lord, we don't want to rob you of what rightfully belongs to you, your tithe. And we bring our offerings just in joy. Lord, hilariously giving to you and to your kingdom's work, Lord. I pray that you give us grace right now to worship you through giving. In Jesus' name, amen.